GMGM, welcome to another episode of the Web3 Futurist podcast. I am so excited today because I have a very special guest. I have Miriam, the founder and the CEO of Brezhna.io, a no-code game maker platform. And I am very excited to dive a bit deep into what they do and also to learn about Miriam's journey in Web3 when it comes to funding and being you know, a founder that's not from the Silicon Valley bubble. Um, so yeah, how are things going with you, uh, Miriam? Super cool, super excited to be here, Stephen. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for giving us a platform to share our story with your audience. I am super excited to be here and share what we have in store. And I think 2024 is going to be epic. So this is such a great way to start it. For sure. And I am, I, it's such a pleasure having you on because I am honestly such a fan. I've seen a lot of your work online. I've seen all the YouTube videos. But for those people that aren't necessarily familiar with what Brezhna is and who you are. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? A hundred percent, Stephen. It's like, I actually have like a 60 second pitch, a two minute pitch, five minute pitch, but I'll give you something in the, in the middle. So um, I'm the founder and CEO. I'm Mariam Nasrit. I'm the founder and CEO of Brezhna.io. And Brezhna, the big idea behind Brezhna is that anyone can make their own video games without any coding or design skills. So think about it almost like the Canva for video games, right? So anyone can go on Breshna. There's these pre-coded games. You can pick up these templates, whether you want to make a run and catch game where you're catching even numbers and dodging odd numbers. So it's an educational game, or you want to make like an entertainment game or like an NFT game where you're catching board apes and dodging all of the, I don't know, the crypto punks. You can do whatever you want. Like basically the big idea is everyone can make their own video games without any coding, without any design skills, at low cost and at lightning speed. The word Brashna actually means lightning in the Pashto language, which is my mother tongue. So the big idea is, you know, it's like um, video games at lightning speed. And then it's also in any language. So we have a global user base. You can make games in English, but you can also make them in any other French, Spanish, Arabic, Urdu, whichever one. So it's been really, really exciting. And we're just um, breaking the time, skills, and cost barriers of making games and then empowering our, our users to create their own video games, but then also showcase them and monetize them in the brush. And that's kind of where the Web3 part comes in. But happy to dive into that, but that's the little bit of the overview. That is such an amazing thing that you guys are addressing. And I, of course, want to dive a bit deeper into what Brezhner is doing. But I want to learn a bit, a bit about yourself as well. So I see you're an economist by trade. Yes, absolutely. So it's so interesting, Stephen, because if you like, you know, chart out my academic or my professional career, like the founder of a gaming startup would not really come out in the cards as much and everything. So I, again, I've been an economist uh, by academic training. I spent 15 years working at the World Bank across 22 different countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Middle East. And my big focus was on education and ed tech policy making. And one of the things that I realized while I was working at the bank was that there's almost this huge um, gap in how we do purposeful communication, right? So if you want to do education, formal education, English, math, history, science, but then also if you want to raise awareness about financial literacy or re reproductive health or climate action, any of these things that require behavior change, unfortunately, it's often like, here's a brochure, here's a workshop, go change your behavior. And as someone who grew up playing um, video games like SimCity, where I was learning about urban planning without even knowing I was learning about urban planning, I knew that there's a power to video games that can go beyond entertainment. 
And eight years ago, I actually started building my own gaming studio aimed at social impact video games. And we saw a huge demand in these games for social good. But what we realized was that there was still like a high time and a cost barrier that people wanted. They wanted these games fast. The demand was too high. We as a service provider could not meet the demand. So we said rather than, you know how they say when there's a gold rush, rather than digging for gold, build spades. So we were like, you know what? We're not going to be the ones making games. We're going to build a platform, build a spade where people can make their own video games for purposeful communication. So kind of like from an economist to a social impact gaming studio to a tech startup that democratizes content creation with video games. And so how has that journey been, you know, with the transitions? Like, I guess they've all been interrelated in some sort of way, but how has that journey been on like a personal level? What have you learned along the way? Yeah, it's wild, Stephen, right? Because when you come from a world, and especially when you work in a, at an organization like the World Bank, um, where you're often the ones giving the money, not fundraising and taking the money, first of all, that dynamic is like, is, is really strange because you're like, all of a sudden, like you're here managing $500 million projects. And then you're like, also, I'm fundraising and write me a check for $5,000. So that, I mean, it's just like, I think there's, um, there's a very interesting transition there. But honestly, I feel like, you know, when they say like, they're like, oh, and then overnight, I started a startup. I actually think like most of these things, they're in the works for very long, right? So I was still at the World Bank and I started working on the side gig that, that the social impact gaming studio that I was doing while I was still working, while I, I was actually still in my second master's degree. So I was doing three things at the same time because I had so much time. So I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do my second master's degree. I'm going to be working at the World Bank and I'm also going to do the side gig. And then when I started thinking about this idea of a tech platform, I was like, this is the kind of thing that's venture backed. And I feel like that switch is actually really important to go from a service-based studio to a venture backed tech startup. There's a lot of mind shift that needs to happen, right? You're going from a bootstrapped small business to all of a sudden this scalable future deck backed by tech startups and venture capital. And that's where you just need to start thinking about scale so much differently, speed of building, you know, like growth, like competitive advantages, just like it's, it's such an interesting shift. But I really do think that if you address it from one thing in particular, which is what is the problem you're solving, then you're not like, today I'm an economist. Now I'm a game provider, like of a not-for-profit gaming studio. Now I'm a, a tech founder. Like the roles and titles don't matter. It's the problem that you're solving. And for us, the problem that we were solving was we need to break the cost, time, and skills barriers between people being able to leverage video games for educational, entertainment, marketing, social impact purposes. In terms of the challenges that you've faced um, on this journey, what has been the most significant? So interesting, Stephen. So I think like... Um, I mean, you know, it's like with a founder, I feel like every day is a challenge. So you just like, it's like this firefighting mode that you're in all the time. And that's why like, as a gaming founder, you're like, this makes total sense. Cause they're just like, every level has its own level and boss. And then you're like challenging that boss and then you go to the next level. And then that has a different boss at the end of the level and everything. So it's just like, I mean, it's a different challenge, but I do think some challenges that, that could be challenges, but also opportunities that stick out is like, first, like, 
this idea of okay building something that's meaningful right and everything so it's like okay how do you how do you decide to build i mean we very much took the approach of build in public throw spaghetti at the wall like the first time we built brushna we had no idea if it was going to use be used for education social impact uh, entertainment like you know small businesses like who was going to end up using it and we really kind of followed the pulse of our community right and everything where we like let's just spaghetti at the wall let's find the places where it's the sticky it's the stickiest and then kind of i mean of course if you're building for everyone we are building for no one so we did try to find like our our super users which ended up being education and content creators but then also like the transition from a no code web2 game maker platform to a web3 brushniverse like a metaverse that was enabled by you know an in-game currency where the in-game currency next quarter will actually live on chain through a brushna token and everything right so it's like that transition every roadmap decision for us has been very much driven by what our users want so we weren't like you know what now we're going to build web3 because web3 is really cool right now so let's just do that for us it was like our users were like i've made brushna games but now i want to showcase them and monetize them so that transition then i think like there's a huge challenge which so many founders resonate with is as a first time non tech non silicon valley non iv league um you know immigrant and also a female founder like you know it's like vc funding isn't the so for me that was like definitely something you know that i had to work on and like you know i mean go through and everything and basically i got on 219 investor calls to get 29 yeses so it's definitely a grind and you have to like you know just continue at it but i feel like with all of these challenges i'm sorry it's a longer answer but with all of these challenges the one thing i've realized is you just need to do one really simple thing which is show up every single day and as long as you do that in in a meaningful way i think um you know when you zoom out you'll see all of the progress like when you're zoomed into like your found life you're like this is not working it's like ups and downs and ups and downs but when you zoom out i think it makes sense and that's something that i praise a lot of founders you know it's it's not an easy journey and i think you have to be very resilient to be successful right and it shows you know with the 219 calls that you've been on um it's it's crazy and i also heard you mention that you know you were building in public right so you're throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks were you building on twitter or x as we know it yeah 100% steven so when i started i did not have a single connection like a warm lead to any angel or vc i actually didn't know the difference between an angel and a vc so first i self taught myself through twitter spaces and youtube videos and yc like i mean you know it's like looking at all of their curriculum and material but then honestly what i started doing and this was 2021 and 2022 right and everything so especially in 2021 all of the vcs had poured over onto x and they had opened up their office hours and they had um what what really worked was everyone like i mean when covid hit all of a sudden i think silicon valley poured onto twitter right because investors were looking for deal flow and the cafes were closed and the in person network networking had ended so they were looking they were like you know what like everyone's on 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 twitter and it was like really interesting because people had their like literally investors had their calendly links in their profiles and you could pitch in these twitter spaces where you could just show up every single day 
So what I started doing was I started showing up in these, in these Twitter spaces and I would like book these calls. And of course it was a no, like every single time, early days, it's like, no, 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 no. But what you realize is first of all, that a no is a not now. They cannot, because often they're like, Hey, you're too early. So then there will be a time where the timing will be right and everything. But then the most important thing I realized was I would be like, okay, that's fine. You don't have to invest, but can I get your email so I can add it to my investor update list? I didn't have any investors, but I was like, I'm still sending an investor update list and that update email I would send every single month to these investors where I would just continue. Like the first time I think it went out, it went out to seven people. And then it was like from seven to like 30 or 30 and then from 30 to like around fifties and everything. Eventually it was like 319 investors that I was like updating on a monthly basis. And a lot of the ones that said no earlier, they kind of see you make that progress and that traction and they turned into yeses. Because again, a no could be a not now could become a yes. If you're able to show traction, because I think investors invest in lines, not dots. So they're just looking for, for proof of traction and momentum. And if you can show that by building in public, I think that can actually really help with investor confidence. Where did you learn that tactic of putting people on this investor email list from? Is it something you picked up yourself? It was just like, I knew that people send investor update emails, right? Cause I'd like read about it, but then I was like, maybe I should just like start sending it now because like I'm already building. So it's like, they're an investor. They don't have to be a, an active investor. So I was like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to put an email together because they're all like, Hey, keep us posted. So I'm like, how am I going to keep you posted? I'll, I'll add you to my investor update email. And now, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's a very common thing, right? And everything like now that we have 29 active investors, we send an update every month and then we'll do a public one every quarter. I mean, so it's like, because it's, it's, it's just a heavier lift. But back in the day, I was like, every single month, I was like, here we go. This is what we're doing and everything. And I think what you, what founders need to realize is investors aren't getting a kick out of saying no to you, right? You just need to be able to de-risk. So it's, a, it's an interesting like risk reward combination for them, right? Coming in early means they get a lower price, like your valuation is lower, but then you're a riskier investment. So they just need to find like an okay balance where they're like comfortable taking the risk because it's still a huge risk. And the way you can do that is by showing that resilience, that grit, that clarity of thought. So all of those things, I think an investor update email captures, like why are you the right person to build this? What are the progress you, what are the actions you're taking towards building what you say you're building? And not everything has to be like, Hey, you know what? Now I have monetization. It could be steps in the middle as well on the pre-seed seed stage, but it's really important to show that momentum and that growth month to month. So let's talk about the details of the fundraising, right? So I see that you've raised about $2.5 million from notable investors. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's a fun one. So we raised $2.5 million in seed funding from on the equity side from investors like Paris Hilton, uh, Randy Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg's sister, Lisa Carbon from the Bad Bitch Empire, Blockchain Founders Fund, um, but then also Bill Ackman's family office and a bunch of like Web2 and Web3 investors. And that has just been so exciting having a cap table that amazing. But then that gives us runway. We've already gone through two and a half years and we still have runway for another 27 months. So the bear market's got nothing on us. We could like hunker down, continue building. But during 2024, we had 
insane user growth. We went from 4,000 registered game makers to 175,000 registered game makers that have created more than 150,000 video games that have more than 6 million game impressions, right? So it's been like completely that hockey stick growth that they talk about. Our cost of acquisition is less than a dollar. So we have this unique opportunity where we can completely blow things out of the park because we're at the intersection of no code, Web3, AI, edtech, you know, gaming. And so what we're doing is we're now getting commitments for a potential Series A in quarter three. So we're gearing up towards like a Series A where we can now 10x our growth targets and completely uniquely position Breshna, uh, you know, in, in this space of no code content creation with Web3 and AI. Um, but yeah, so I mean, so we have plenty of runway, but then the one thing we decided to do was we got so many value add investors that were like, hey, we really want to join your ride, but we'd already closed our seed round and then we're going to be too big for them at the Series A. So in this interesting space right now where you're like, I mean, a founder, as a founder, you're always fundraising, you're always building relationships with investors and you meet these people that have so much strategic value add. And you're like, man, but your check size is so small. So we actually ended up opening an equity crowdfunding on Republic, an equity crowdfunding campaign that allows anyone to own a slice of Breshna for as low as $100. And you can join the ride uh, before this rocket lifts off for the Series A. So the big idea is just like all the other investors, you know, um, equity crowdfunding allows retail investors, non-accredited investors, normal users, to own a slice of brush now for as low as a hundred. That's amazing. And it's something that I think a lot of these listeners would be, would actually be interested in. What is the process like to be able to, let's say, sign up on Republic and then, you know, chip in a hundred dollars? It's so simple. It's actually kind of wild how simple it is. So like, again, you go on republic.com forward slash Prashna, you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to put in a hundred dollars. You make an account. They do a very basic verification of like, you know, I mean, where are you from? Which country? Blah, blah. And then, and this is global, by the way, this is not uh, uh, limited to US. So most countries, unless the country itself does not allow it, most countries like we've had investors globally come in. And then the coolest thing is you can invest using your credit card, your bank account, an ACH transfer, a wire transfer, whatever it is, and every debit card. So it's like, it really is like, just like going online on like Amazon and buying your favorite shoe, only that this time it's a hundred dollars in a future decacorn, hopefully. So, I mean, so it's just like, it's one of those things where we just wanted, I mean, again, we don't need the money, but for our community, we've just realized that having ownership and having people that have skin in the game, they just become such strong supporters. And I have seen too many startups, um, you know, IPO and have an exit where the founders make a ton of money and then the investors make a ton of money and everyone's partying on their yachts. But, you know, the people that are standing on the sidelines is the community, the early supporters. They're like, oh, you're building something so cool, but they don't really get to share in that upside. So for me, it was like, hey, here's an opportunity where anyone can jump on, own a slice of Breshna for $100 on Again, republic.com forward slash Prashna, make an account and invest. You do have only 15 days left. So the campaign is closing on February 15th. I don't know when this is going to air, but yeah, we would love to have some of your listeners um, on our journey of empowering the next 100 million people so they can tell their stories through video games. Definitely. I also want to talk about um, a bit more of the details about the investments that you have gotten. So you mentioned notable names like uh, BFF and Paris Hilton and things like that. 
I have a question and that is what is the role of let's say like a lead investor and you know how did you get all these notable um I guess names and and to invest in, in Brezhnev yeah, so it's really cool. So the first question I think, Stephen, is like a lead investor. So we actually had two leads for our seed round. One was like a Web2 lead. One was a Web3 lead because it almost like we had like morphed into two pro products that we were building, like the Brashna no-code game maker and then the Brashnaverse. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was just like a separate like Web3 investors understood kind of like the metaverse, the in-game currency, the token dynamics. So the token is launching later this year. And then kind of the Web2 investors understand like, you know, the no-code content creation, two-sided marketplace platforms. So we had the uh, the VC that made their, our very first investment, 11 tribes from Mark Phillips, they kept topping up and they became our lead. So one of the more common things is mostly the leads are your biggest investors. They don't have to be the biggest, but they have to be amongst at least like the top three, top five. That's kind of like an unwritten rule. But in our case, they were definitely amongst the top five. So, right, like they, they write a big check. But then also they kind of show conviction and they set the terms and they kind of like, you know, uh, get that ball rolling. So with investments, it's a lot of FOMO. It's a lot of who's like, where are the hotcakes and everything? Like, where's the most demand? It's such a, um, as an economist, I think this was really useful for me because it's all about supply and demand. And it's a price, like valuation is the price of your equity. And the more demand that there is, the higher the valuation that you can close on and everything. So like, you know, with, with lead investors, you're able to set the terms, you're able to kind of dictate like how that's going to go. And then what re what's really interesting, Stephen, that happens is the first zero to 300K was the hardest. Such an uphill battle. It was like, oh my God, like you're just like fighting for every single 5,000, 10,000, $15,000 investment. And it's really hard. And then I think from 300K to 700K, it gets starts getting a little bit easier. You start showing traction. People start hearing about you, you know, all of that and everything. And then what's really interesting is we were aiming to raise 1 million. So we raised a million. We put out a press release. We were like, okay, this is awesome. We've closed our seed round. Hurrah. Like we can go back to work. And that's when we actually started getting all of the inbound. And that's where the founder has to make a very interesting decision is like, do you continue to fundraise or do you stop and everything? And I'm really happy that we continue to fundraise. Because you, I'm, I almost believe like you should be fundraising when you don't need the money, because that's when you actually are able to dictate your terms. You're able to be in a very good negotiating power. So we said no to a lot of checks, but these bigger names kind of followed later on and they just introduce each other, right? So every single investor on our cap table can be traced back to a cold outreach. But once you get a few names in there, like Blockchain Founders Fund, for instance, made a few connections that then led to like, you know, Bill Ackman's family office. And then that kind of led to a connection to Paris Hilton's team and everything. So it's just like, you know, I mean, it's just um, kind of really cool network effects that start to domino. And I think that's when the magic really starts to happen. And you're like, all right, you know what? It's, I'm not in this alone. There's all these amazing investors around me that are rallying around me. I have advisors and everything and I can continue building. And I think it's a really cool feeling. So, so that's kind of how it happens. Um, but the lead investors do play a very critical role, not just with their financial capital, but also with their social capital. In terms of what you've learned on this journey, this entrepreneur, let's, okay, let's restart. So what, le what lessons have you learned from your entrepreneurial journey um, that you wish that you knew before you started? Wow. 
I think the one thing I've learned is, I think this, this idea of cumulative, and I actually like did a LinkedIn post about this the other day. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's like this successive events that happen, right? And everything. I think like when you start off with, with entrepreneurship, you're like, if I get this one client, if I get this one investor, if I get this, um, you know, one product feature, everything's going to be different. Or if I lose this one client or I lose this one investor or I lose this one milestone, the whole world's going to fall apart. Neither is true, right? And everything. So it's like the only things like things will get better, successively better if you continue to have that cumulative growth in the positive direction. Things will continue to get worse if you successively get worse, right? And everything. So no one thing is going to make or break your journey but it is under your control. Like if you have a one win or one setback, then it's in your hand how the next one's going to be. Like, can you cumulatively build on that win? What are you going to do with that? Like, okay, so for instance, you got one big investor. How are you going to now leverage that to get the other one, to get the other one? If you got one amazing client, how are you going to do that as a proof of concept to get the other, you know, clients and, and B2B partnerships and everything? So I think for me, the biggest realization was it is not a life and death situation. First of all, you will be okay. Like you are not your startup. Like literally the worst thing that can happen is it shuts down and that's okay. Like, you know, and everything, as long as you're breathing, you will manage. But I think the other thing, which is really, which is really hard because founders associate themselves with their company so much that it becomes your identity and becomes like a life and death situation. So I think there's that there's like, okay, what is the worst that can happen? But then more importantly, it's this idea of cumulative. So I do this cliche thing where I'm like, there's three Ps. Show up every single day with perseverance, passion, and purpose. And that's literally all you need. You know, it's like every single day, if you show up with that fire in your belly and you're moving towards a purpose, um, there's nothing gonna, that's going to stop you from becoming a decacorn. So in terms of talking about growth and purpose and stuff, you've mentioned this crazy significant growth that Brijna has gone through over the course of the past year. What is next in 2020? Oh, so many exciting things. So 2024 is going to be wild, right? I feel like there's years where you're kind of like um, cultivating and then the next year you're like reaping the benefits and everything. So I feel like 2023 was about survival, growth, getting, you know, being like, all right, let's, let's get through this bear market. Things are like, it's a, it's bloodbath out there. Like, let's survive, but then also be ready to ride the tides when they come back. 2024, exciting things are happening. So first of all, Brushnaverse is launching, which is wild for us because now our users will not only be able to make their games, but also showcase them and monetize them in a carnival themed metaverse. So you can have your own carnival stands. If you've made five math games on Brushna, you can showcase them, you can monetize them. And that's going to happen through an in-game Brushna token. So that's like big on the Web3 side. We're also launching our AI powered text to game engine. So with a simple text prompt, like something like make me a run and catch game where a unicorn is catching candies and dodging fire. You press generate, the full game gets created for you. So that's like gonna be really, really cool on the text to game engine side. So that's on the product. Then on the monetization and growth, we're actually unlocking these massive B2B opportunities with edtechs and telcos, where we're seeing a lot of growth um, you know, on our on our monetization channels. And we're such an efficient team. Check this out, Stephen. For a team of 
25 developers and designers and like, you know, business development people, our burn is less than $40,000. So we actually expect to be profitable by the end of 2024. So that's kind of one of the best places to be is you're just, you're, I mean, you're, you're generating revenue and you're profitable because you're capital efficient. And then that's on growth and monetization. And then on the fundraise side, um, you know, again, we've gotten these commitments towards the Series A. We don't need to fundraise, but it would put us in this exciting opportunity to just blitz scale our growth and get to that, you know, 10 million game plays and 1 million game makers number that we want to be at and really have that global positioning of being, um, you know, the platform that empowers the next 100 million people so they can tell their stories through video games. So big things on the product side, on the growth and monetization side, and then also on the fundraising side. So I think it's going to be a banger of a year and I'm excited about it. For sure. And I am so excited myself, you know, like I'm, I'm getting so hyped just listening to you talk about Brigner and, and the plans uh, moving forward. So in terms of, you know, um, wrapping things up, what would you like to say to the people that are watching slash listening to this podcast? Would say a couple of things so like first of all if you have ever thought that you are whatever work you're doing whether you're educating your child you know you're a small business owner that wants to raise awareness about your company you're an nft project or like a web3 project and you want to do a web3 one-on-one game if you've ever thought about leveraging the power of video games to tell your story breshna is for you i've seen so many people that are like no 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 i'm not a gamer i'm not a tech person we truly pride ourselves in having a very flat learning curve. It's completely free to make a game on Brush and it takes 15 minutes. So it would be like awesome, awesome to see the listeners. Just try it out, make a game. You want a book of free demo. We're happy to help you out making, making your own first video game. And then the second thing I'd love to say is we would love to have you on our journey. Like we're still early. We've made so much immense progress. We raised $2.5 million, 170,000 game makers. We have a, an AI-powered text-to-game engine and a Brushniverse launching soon, and we're still early. Like This rocket is about to lift off, and we're giving our community one last opportunity to own a slice of Brushna. So I would love for them to join the journey on republic.com forward slash Brushna. So once again, I think if our listeners, you know, make a game and own a slice of Brushna, and, and I mean, I think like that would be really, really cool. Miriam, well, thank you so much for your time. I genuinely have enjoyed this conversation so much and I am very excited to see where Brigina goes in the next year. So thank you so much for your time and I shall see you on the next one. You're awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. And thanks for being game. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>